It was 1968 and Jo Robinson was having a mental breakdown when she was invited to a meeting that would change her life. I just met all these people who had, you know, had these very different lives to mine. Um, uh, most people were students and I, th I, th I think they were probably all studying sociology because there was a sort of language that people had that I wasn't au fait with at all. Um, but I was fascinated by the people that had come back and uh, people were talking about revolution and changing the system and when I heard the words changing the system and I began to feel that was something these people were involved with and doing and I thought yes it, it just it just occurred to me just like that that it was a system that I'd always been up against but I'd always felt it the other way round. I'd felt that I was powerless and caught up in especially mental illness just caught but I began to hear about people who believed in fighting against this system and that this system could be changed just like that and that gave me a fantastic piece of hope that I never ever felt before in my life I'd always thought it was my fault I'm mentally deranged but it's all my fault. And this opened a door and, and there was a light just shone for me that there was something to explore with what people were saying. And the whole language that everybody was able to use is sort of language of de sociology that could deconstruct things. And I was just fascinated by it. Rebel Women, a podcast about history's troublemakers. I'm Esther Freeman. Today we explore one of the most famous moments in the women's liberation movement, the 1970 Miss World protests, an event that's recently been the subject of the film Misbehaviour, starring Kira Knightley. We were very lucky to interview one of the women who was actually there, Jo Robinson, who now lives in East London. Jo was born in the post-war era, part of a counter-cultural movement thrown off the shackles of the parents' generation. Life didn't start out like this for Jo, though. Well, I grew up in Blackpool, and um, I went to school there. I went to grammar school. I, first of all, I went to a boarding school. When I was six years old, I was sent to a boarding school in St Anne's-on-Sea um, because my mother thought it would make me into a proper lady and I would lose my Lancashire twang. Now when well, my mother had had high hopes for me by going to a nearby boarding school and being sort of polished um, in, in every way. So I, I wasn't intent on that myself, I was just intent on being naughty in order to have fun, to get around being in this, you know, hideous place. Because it was, I was six or seven when I went, and um, it, was, it was quite a frightening place to be in. Uh, probably the opposite of what she could imagine it was like. 
After school, Joe got a place at Blackpool Technical College to study art. It, it was great fun at art school. We, I, I, like, I remember life drawing most of all because we spent hours at life drawing and we had a teacher from Yorkshire who used to teach us and it was all about finding that turn of the form. You must find that turn of the form. Look out and find that turn of the form and he's got a big old pencil and just catch the light. And so he trained us like that and I, I copied, and so I learnt to draw the turn of the form and uh, that I was obsessed with that. Then tragedy struck. At only 61, her father died suddenly of bronchitis. The following year, her mother had a stroke and died too. With no siblings, Joe was alone in the world. When my mother died, um, <clears throat> Well, I was, I was alone in the house with her body for three days. And um, there wasn't really anybody, there wasn't any family around, so there wasn't anybody really who supported me at all. Um, and that, that, was, that was a very difficult part. So we got ready f for the funeral. Oh, someone, some people did come. And they just criticised me that I got a hunk, I wasn't wearing a hat. So I just started drinking the whiskey that was there for the funeral. I just like wanted to run away and escape it all. There, there wasn't anybody really that had the, the main support came from two people I knew at art school, and I used to go around their house a lot, and and um, they they. They were great to me, um, but it was, it was a difficult time. One of these friends announced he was going to London. With nothing tying her to Blackpool anymore, Joe decided to go with him. They got a flat together. John found work with the artist David Bailey, who was at the start of his rise to fame. Joe got a job at a theatre, painting scenery. Everything was new and exciting. And of course there was all this fantastic music just coming out and pouring over us. You know, we, we just all bought records all the time and listened to our music and that, that was so exciting. Um, and the Beatles and the Stones, I loved them all. But behind the excitement of swinging London, life was not so shiny for Joe. I was really, really, really depressed and I couldn't tell anybody because I was with students and people who smoked dope a lot and were all having a good time and I just felt, you know, I hadn't really um, mourned my parents and it was, it was all catching up with me. And I had a very good friend, Joan, who had a flat in Baker Street, 
and she always had, lo she had two children, she always had loads of people around there, it was like a little centre. Uh, but inside, I had all this stuff to deal with and um, I didn't want to talk about it because I just wanted to be, you know, a new, I want, I want, I didn't want to be, I didn't want to deal with what I had to deal with. And so I held it inside and eventually I just like, I just really cracked up and um, I went to the doctor and got some pills, uh, I think they were Librium. And when I came home, I looked at these pills and I thought, they're not really doing anything. So I just took the whole lot. And then my friend Don came home and I said to him, I've just taken a bottle of pills. So he said, right, I'll get an ambulance. So. <laughs> and I got rushed off to the hospital, had a stomach pump and uh, came round and then sat there and I wouldn't speak to anybody. And I said, I don't want to see any visitors. So I didn't speak for a long, quite a long time. And eventually I was put in front of a psychiatrist and um, uh, I, 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 I couldn't speak. It took a long time to get me to speak. And uh, they gave me some pills. And I started taking them, Tofrinil. And um, it helped, I started to get better. And I had this psychiatrist I had to go and see quite a long time. And in the end, I said, look, what's happening? What's happening to my brain? What was going on? I said, draw me a picture of the brain and tell me what's happening. So he, he drew me a picture and said, you take these pills. And I said, well, how long do I have to take these pills for what's going to happen? He said, you have to take them for the, for the rest of your life. So I thought, oh, no, I'm not doing that, no. Um, so I discharged myself. And then years later, I found a letter that he'd written in my doctor's notes. And so I, I went to the toilet and took the, the letter out. And I've got the letter upstairs. And it says, um, like the state I was in, he, he writes about it. and. Um, uh, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a weird letter. I mean, because he doesn't explain that my, he doesn't mention that my parents died or anything about that. It just says at the end, sadly to say, I do. She comes to see me every week with great charm and abandon and and bluffs her way through, but usually on the wrong date. Sadly to say, I feel that. She is of the psychopathic fringe. So there's this letter sitting in my doctor's. So I just took it out and thought, thank God I got through all that on my own. I had to get away from that treatment. And I decided I have to just work my way out and through it. And I did. I did. This is when Jo met a group of students who would be her catalyst for change. Their first meeting was at Roland Muldoon's Cast Theatre. 
Muldoon was a playwright and actor who co-founded the radical theatre group Cast, Cartoon Archetypal Slogan Theatre. Their productions were part of the agitprop movement, a term that originated in Soviet Russia to describe literature, plays, films and other art forms that had an explicit political message. The theatre group became known for their short, fast-moving plays which tackled issues such as the Vietnam War. Jo describes her first encounter with them. There was a grand piano on stage and it was in the way. So somebody drilled a hole through the grand piano to put a wire through it to get across. I thought, my goodness me, what kind of people are these? But they did seem—they did seem very interesting to me. So I hung about. I started talking to people, and um, I kept meeting people who'd just come back from Cuba, or just come back from the boulevards in France where they've been throwing bricks. She's referring to May 1968, which saw a period of civil unrest in France that lasted nearly two months. It included strikes, demonstrations, and occupations of universities and factories. Back to Joe. I think I was in a passive state, soaking it up, because it was a world I'd, I'd never heard about, using words that weren't known to me, that, that sex, that words dealing with like the feeling of yourself as an individual, but there's a system out there that contains us all. and. I, I found strength from the words that the people said and the belief that it didn't have to be like this. That was the message I was getting. It doesn't have to be like this. That was the welcome message I was hearing. I mean, that really makes me cry. It's like, it's the first time I've ever heard anyone say anything like that. It doesn't have to be like this. One meeting soon led to another, and Jo found herself at the poster workshop in Camden. The, the exciting thing is, when I walked into poster workshop, there was this dingy little basement um, in, underneath a hairdresser's shop. They were turning out all these silkscreen printed posters, and there was someone called John Michel, who had come from P Paris, from the boulevards, fighting on the boulevards, and he had been in the Atelier Populaire, turning out posters for the revolution in Paris. Jo threw herself into the thick of it. People who came in from all over, all over the world really came into our workshop and wanted posters to do with their particular cause that they were fighting. So uh, it, it was totally exciting because we were making posters for hundreds of groups and they were, uh, there was squatting going on, there were students on strike, uh, there were factories on strike, uh, there were many things going on. So I had a complete sort of political education and it had begun to have an insight into the similarity of like everybody was fighting for a cause it's about justice and fairness and equality. Those were the themes that were coming up again and again 
It was at the poster workshop that Joe heard about the Women's Liberation Conference at Ruskin College, Oxford. The first Women's Liberation Conference ever was going to be, and it sounded very exciting. So there was going to be a van going with people I knew from London. And I was living in Manchester now, but I came down for the conference and we went to it in a van. And um, it was it was totally amazing because uh, women from all over had come to this conference and the great thing was that the, the men had organised a crash to look after the children. Uh, so that enabled a lot of people to come. Uh, it was put on by a group of people from Oxford University who had been looking into uh, women's history and they called this, uh, they put this conference together and I, I, well, I mean, suddenly realised that this is the first ever conference about women's liberation. I, I had no idea what, what it was going to be about other than women's history and uh, I've got something in my... Uh, the, the thing I remember most is going to um, a talk about the politics of housework. Now that was written by two housewives, called themselves housewives at the time, who came from South London. And they simply looked at like the big politically charged issue in every household in the country of like, who does the washing up? They'd stared into their sinks of dirty pots and started thinking, why is that women's responsibility? And they wrote a paper that was just exploring that idea, which was well, like, really like to be the heart and soul of that conference. Jo came away from the conference with her mind suitably blown. It, it had been amazing in that I, I don't know quite how it happened because there were so many papers, but it was all about the position of women in society. I mean, just taking those words, not sort of, I hadn't heard them before, really. The position of women in society. And just hearing about words written by women, explored in history by women, of all that they had found out about what had been happening to women in society. And then, you know, all these presentations in one weekend, it just completely blew open your mind, as you would have said, you know, like, wh where do you go with that? How, how do you, you know, it, it was just like, it was life-changing. It was completely life-changing to meet these people and hear from these people who had already been doing so much work on history of women. And that really opened the gates for us to think like, what does it mean? Where are we going to go with this? That infamous conference lit a flame. Soon women's lib groups were rising up across the country. 
In consciousness-raising workshops, they shared their own experiences as well as the wider history of women in society. Then the two women had written that paper on housework, Hazel Twart and Jan Williams, had an idea that would propel the women's lib movement into the mainstream. They would take their fight onto the global stage, to the Miss World Contest. And it just presented itself as an obvious target for us to say, let's focus on this. Hey, what's happening here? What's this all about? And when you looked at it and saw what it was, you thought, gosh, we, we need to be there. We want to be there. We want to expose this. We've got to expose this to the world because this is like a um, performance in front of the world. Miss World 1970 was the 22nd pageant held at the Royal Festival Hall in London. The contest was one of the biggest TV events of the year, drawing in audiences of over 100 million worldwide. The women's lib activists knew this was theirs for the taking, they just had to make themselves felt. So they agreed. They would buy tickets, dress up in their mother's Sunday best, camouflaging themselves in the audience. When the signal sounded, a football rattle, all hell would break loose. They had a plan. But what about a slogan? So people were in a room, I wasn't at this, but they were sort of saying, well, what, what can we put on a slogan? And they were thinking and thinking. And suddenly Sue, who was lying stretched out, she was because she was fully pregnant, sort of, she said she felt like a beached whale. She suddenly sat up and went, well, we're not ugly and we're not beautiful. We're angry. And everybody went, yes, that's it. That's the slogan. Yes. It said it all. It was sharp and simple. So that was the slogan. That's how that got organised. The night came and Joe headed to the Royal Albert Hall. I'd never been in it before. No, I just sort of like, I had to put my head back to look up to see, like, my gosh, it's so humongous up there. It's like, it goes on forever, this huge, huge dome. And then I'd gone on my own, expecting to meet people outside to go in with and to find my friends, but I couldn't see anybody outside. And I was, I thought, well, I better get a ticket because I won't be able to get in. So I went and bought the ticket. And then I thought, oh, they still haven't turned up, but I'll have to start going in. So I go in, look up, and then look at the size of it and think, oh gosh, where, where are they? I can't see anybody. I, I, I'll have to find a seat because time's getting on. So I just went and just went into an aisle and found a seat. Right now I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I'm going to have to do this on my own. <sighs> right. So I sat there and then I had to wait and wait and wait and wait and wait for the signal because there was no way before phones existed that we could uh, get each other's attention apart from wave 
But I, I didn't want to wave and draw attention to myself sitting with all these people that I didn't know. I mean, I suppose it could have been all right, but I mean, you really like, I looked across and you really couldn't see in the lights, you know, you couldn't see faces. So I just didn't know where people were. Well, I started looking at the people all around me and they were sort of uh, all quite well dressed for the evening, sort of like evening appearance in sort of uh, f flashy clothes and uh, just sort of mink coats, a lot of mink coats sort of thrown over chairs and, and smoking. Of course, people were smoking, so you could smoke then, so like, Yes, all looking rather sort of elegant and very sure of themselves and confident. And um, I'm sitting on my own with these people, so I'm beginning to realise that um, I'm have, going to have to stand up at some point in, in front of these people. I'll be right next to them when the signal goes off. So I'm thinking, um, this, it, it, this is difficult. And now I'm thinking, when's that signal going to go off? Because by then, Bob Cope, Hope came on the stage and started making his compare thing. But he got going and he started talking about uh, Buckingham Palace. He had to make a point that he'd been to it and some weedy jokes about it. And nobody seemed to be laughing. And then he started on uh, jokes about going to Vietnam with the girls to make the boys hot to fight against the Viet Cong. And uh, it, was, it was just getting worse and worse. And I thought, oh God, is, when's his signal going to be? Because I thought, well, maybe they'll just let him show himself getting worse and worse, but we've just got to, you know, let that happen. So he just gets worse and worse and eventually I hear a rattle start up and it was very weedy so, and it didn't really get going. Oh God, what's happening? And then suddenly another rattle started going and I heard both rattles going. And I was going, wow, this is it. The moment has come. So I jumped up. I just stood there and I didn't know what to do. I just looked around. I had a big satchel on me and down at one side. And I sort of looked in my satchel thinking, what can I do, what can I do? And um, uh, I suddenly heard all this noise coming from all over the hall. Like it, it began very gradually and then it suddenly got louder and louder and people there were shouts and screams, especially from the dogs above me. And I could hear people whistling and screaming and suddenly they started throwing things from the top and there was like flower bombs that people just let go and they'd fall down and plop onto the stage and pop and smoke it up. And then they started throwing some leaflets down and then all these fantastic noises coming from everywhere. And um, I, I, I just sort of watched for, for a bit. I was mesmerised, you know. Gosh, 
we're in the Albert Hall and like we're doing this, we've stopped the show, hooray, and now, now we've got attention, so out with the leaflets, here they come, they're saying what we're doing. And I thought, well, I can't stay here. There's, there's nothing to do here, so I'll, I'll walk down there with my bag and see what I can do. Then there was this man near me who picked up a chair. He looked as though he might be going to throw it. So I sort of got away from him and skirted round the side. And um, I saw all the media standing there, so I thought, oh, right. Um, I looked at my bag, I've got these rotten vegetables, I thought I'll start with you, so right, take that, take that, take that. And then I thought, oh, I've got some leaflets. I thought, you need to read something about us, all the trash you write about women. Here, here, take that, this is what we think, this is why we're doing it, this is what it's about. Take that, take that. Bob Hope fled the stage. The women had sucker punched the patriarchy. But how to get out of there? I was there pelting the media and then it suddenly gone all quiet. Everybody had, had left or been arrested. And I looked round and I thought, my God, I'm the only person left and they all know it's me. I thought, well, I've got to get out but I can't go on the ground floor where they've all gone because I'll just be arrested. So I'll have to go out the way I came in, which is up there. There's a little sign lit up in green that says exit. I have to get from here up there now. I'm the only protester in the Albert Hall, so they know that I am a protester. I can't disguise the fact. So I just set off. I thought, I've just got to go up these steps and get out. So I set off walking, went up a row, across, across an aisle, went up another one. And then, just as I'm turning into the aisle in front of a row of people, I see a bouncer coming for me at the other side. And he's, he's coming straight across towards me. So I look in my bag and think, well, what have I got? So I look at, oh, I've got a water pistol. So I take it out and point it at him. And everybody on this row goes, ah, like that. And then I look and he's coming towards me and he's getting really near me. So I go, I'll have to pull the trigger. So I pull the trigger and out shoots this bright blue ink. I have forgotten I had put blue ink in the pistol and it goes straight onto his white starched shirt. So I start, so I do a, a, an arc and I think, I try and do a women's sign. But he's coming towards me now quickly, so I think, ooh, pop's not. So I stick it in my bag and I think I've got to get out of here. So I carry on up the steps and I finally get to that door. It says exit, open it and get out into the street. And I start walking slowly out of the street thinking I've escaped. But I suddenly hear someone walking behind me very fast so I start to run and then he starts to run and he chases me right down the road into Brompton Road with the traffic near to the traffic and I think he I think he tripped me up but I think I ended up on the floor and 
he pulled out a thing and said he was a plainclothes cop. Joe was taken to Bow Street Police Station and thrown into the cells. Later at their trial, they pleaded not guilty, but still received a fine, which was paid for by the Women's Liberation Front. Joe and the women's liberation activists made history that night, but they were not the only ones. Following the protest, Jennifer Holston from Granada was crowned Miss World, making her the first black woman to win the pageant. In the film Misbehaviour, lead protester Sally Alexander meets Jennifer Holston, where they have an imagined conversation about whose rights are being fought for. Jennifer, played by Gugu Mbatha-Raw, says, quote, There will be little girls watching tonight who will feel differently because I won who might start to believe you don't have to be white to have a place in this world. Black beauty as a defence against racism is an idea that journalist and activist Claudia Jones was concerned with. Born in the Caribbean and raised in Harlem, Claudia was a communist who would find herself a victim of the McCarthy witch hunt in the 1950s. Because she was born in Trinidad, she was a subject of the British Empire, so was deported from the US to Britain, joining the growing Caribbean community. She began organising in London, launching the West Indian Gazette, providing a rare opportunity for black people to see their lives reflected in the media. In 1958, tensions exploded and race riots broke out across the UK. In response, Claudia organised the first ever Notting Hill Carnival to show that the Caribbean community had an identity and culture to be proud of, that they were more than a problematic group who some felt were harming the social fabric of Britain. She said, quote, Our carnival symbolises the unity of our people resident here and all our many friends who love the West Indies. As part of the festivities, Claudia staged a carnival queen competition, which was based on the black beauty pageants in New York. She knew these pageants weren't without their problems, especially as they were run and controlled by men. The Notting Hill pageant aimed to redefine this by putting the power back in the hands of women. They could nominate themselves and prizes were tailored towards careers within the beauty sector. It was an attempt to uplift black women who may otherwise only be able to find menial work. Claudia was also attempting to redefine black beauty, which has a long history of being tied to racism. She wanted to reclaim black women and their bodies using images that would harness a sense of identity and pride. It was an idea that was reignited in the 60s and 70s with the Black is Beautiful movement, which encouraged natural hair and pride in the black body. It was an ideology incorporated into radical groups like the Black Panther Party. The women's liberation movement was dominated by white women, and black feminists organising in Britain at the time often felt marginalised or even silenced. While white feminists said they did not want to be judged by their looks, black women were simply glad to have a seat at the table at last. As the on-screen Jennifer Holston says to the on-screen Sally Alexander, quote, I look forward to having your choices. It is a complex question that has undergone some discussion. What's discussed less is how these two landmark moments happen not just in the same year, but in the same competition. As Jennifer Holston said herself, nobody expected her to win. Her odds were 25 to 1. So what flipped it for her? After all, beauty pageant judges aren't known for their progressive ideas. Was it what a character in the TV show Succession might term taking back control of the narrative? I don't wish to dismiss the achievements of Jennifer Holston, who's been described as laying the groundwork for the likes of Beyoncé and Rihanna. But even she suggests her victory may have in part been linked to the protests. Many years after the contest, she would write, quote, 
Over time, I came to view that the feminist protests around Miss World 1970 had contributed to my victory. Not in large part, but somewhat, because they were insisting that it was all about beauty and only beauty could win. The judges chose someone who had made a deliberate effort to present herself as a person and perform well in every aspect of the contest. End quote. She had what they call the package. Whether it was the package or the beauty pageant judges being dragged kicking and screaming into the modern world, behind the change were women who would not take no for an answer, despite the odds being stacked against them. Their different and sometimes conflicting ideas highlight the complexity of the women's question, both at that time and today. There is never only one issue to fight against, and we can only win when the movement takes on them all. This is Rebel Women. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate and review. Better still, tell your friends about it. If you want to get in touch, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. For further stories about East London women, visit our website, eastlondonwomen.org.uk. Rebel Women is part of the Women Activists of East London project, which has been developed by Share UK, a non-profit community group based in London. Special thanks to the William Morris Big Local for funding today's episode.